Please pray with me. Lord, we want to adore you. So God, would you help us to see your glory more clearly? Would you use your word to meet us again? God, we pray that your word would succeed in all of your good purposes this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, the last book in your Bible, Revelation chapter 4. And before I begin, uh, let me just briefly say it's been a great honor to preach to you in this pulpit. You are a church that loves to hear God's Word proclaimed, and many preachers do not get to preach to people who are so hungry to hear someone explain the words of this book. And so I am deeply thankful to God for uh, these times that we've shared. The book of Revelation is written near the end of the Apostle John's life as he is in exile on the island of Patmos. John was banished there because of his faith in Christ. And he writes in this book to seven first century churches in Asia. Some of those churches were enduring great suffering and persecution like John himself was. And some of these churches were bearing up under these trials in faithfulness. Others were compromising by sin or with false teaching. And the Lord told his apostle John to write to these churches. And the Lord gave John messages and visions to share with them. And in the messages, the Lord tells the churches to be faithful until death and to persevere through suffering. And he promises that those who continue repenting and trusting in Christ will overcome the world and receive eternal life and be saved from God's wrath and reign with Christ in his kingdom forever. And then right after the direct words of Christ to the churches, John sees a vision of the heavenly throne room. And that's Revelation 4. In, in subsequent visions after that, John uh, we'll see the Lord showing him visions of his terrifying judgments being poured out on sinful humanity. And then in the end, John sees Christ returning, defeating all his enemies. John sees the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God. He sees a new heavens and a new earth created. He sees a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven where the dwelling place of God will be with man without sin or sickness and sorrow. And the Lord will be in the midst of his people and they will see his face and they will worship him in glory and they will reign with Christ forever. And these visions are a call to the church to endure in faith now and patiently wait for the Lord to come and accomplish all these things. In the vision of Revelation 4, our text today, John sees the Lord is reigning on his throne and so he has confidence, we have confidence, that God will accomplish all his holy will that's shown in later chapters. And the last time we were in the book of Revelation together, we looked at the first half of this chapter. Look there again with me now at verse 1. 
John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. When John is called up to the heavenly temple throne room, he is transfixed, first of all, by the one seated on the throne. He sees the king in his beauty, the king in dazzling splendor and dreadful majesty. And after John describes the king on his throne, which we just read, he begins to describe the worship around the throne, which we'll look at together today. And what else could possibly surround a king like this except worship? There are two great movements of worship in our passage of Scripture today. First, John sees four living creatures worshiping God as the Holy Lord. And then John sees 24 heavenly elders worshiping God as the worthy creator. And I pray that God will use this passage of his word to tune your heart to sing his praise that with heaven you will worship the holy Lord and worthy creator. Let's begin looking at and and listening to this first great movement of praise. Worship the Holy Lord. Note first with me the description of the worshipers found at the beginning of verse 6. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. These worshipers of the king are four living beings, and we admit that these creatures are very strange, but if we know our Old Testaments, we would admit that it is not strange to find them here in the presence of God, around the throne, worshiping. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel had a vision of beings very similar to these. In Ezekiel chapter 1, that prophet saw four living creatures surrounding the throne of the Lord, even upholding the throne of the Lord. And there the Lord manifests His incomprehensible glory and presence in many of the same ways that John beholds here. And Ezekiel writes about seeing these living creatures again in chapter 10. And there he identifies them as cherubim. Cherubim are an order of angelic being often associated with God's throne and God's 
presence. Consider that a cherub was placed as guard to the Garden of Eden to prevent fallen and exiled humanity from God's presence. Cherubim were featured in the decorations of the tabernacle and later temple, the places that represented God's presence in the midst of his people. And the place within the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence was specially manifested, the Holy of Holies, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark were carved two cherubim, which symbolized not only God's presence in the midst of his people, but his throne in the midst of his people. Many times in the Old Testament, God is said to be enthroned on the cherubim. In verse 8, John continues to describe these beings, but now he adds details showing similarities with the vision God gave to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, which Randy read to begin our worship service. Look down at verse 8 with me. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. So what looked like Ezekiel's cherubim start now also to bear resemblances with the angelic beings Isaiah saw, whom Isaiah identified as seraphim, another order of high, holy angels. And specifically, John sees these living creatures have six wings, like the seraphim in Isaiah's vision. And, and there they use two wings to fly and two additional pairs to shield their feet and their faces from the Lord so as not to take in the full weight of God's devastating, magnificent holiness. Like Ezekiel, Isaiah beholds angels in the presence of the Lord, worshiping him as he is seated on his throne, high and lifted up. The four living creatures that John sees in Revelation 4 worship the Lord using the exact same words that the angels did in Isaiah 6. In chapter 4, we find these living beings doing what it seems any being would be compelled to do in the presence of such a king. The living creatures are completely absorbed in reverent, rapturous worship. These four living creatures resemble both cherubim and seraphim, and so they represent angels of the highest order and of the highest privilege. These are incredibly glorious beings. But the glory is of even these exceedingly wonderful creatures is like a small speck of dust before our holy God. And so they themselves must worship. And the worship of these four living creatures shows us how fitting it is for all of creation and everything in it to worship the Creator. And perhaps that's the significance of the various faces John sees on them. One has the face like a lion, the most mighty of the beasts. Another has the face of an ox, the most powerful domesticated animal. Another like an eagle in flight, the most majestic of flying creatures. And of course, another like the most sublime of all God's creatures on earth, having the appearance of a man. God's image bearer. So when we see these, these representations of the most majestic earthly creatures in heaven, and we find them worshiping around the throne, 
Well, this scene is a sermon that cries out, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Look again at verse 8 with me now. And, and hear how these heavenly creatures worship God. Will you worship the Holy Lord with them? As I read this. Verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never cease to say, holy. And then again, holy. And again, holy. Repeating words is a common literary feature in the Bible for emphasis. And to emphasize something by a threefold repetition is to emphasize it exponentially. It is an ultimate move of emphasis. God's holiness is being highlighted to the uttermost. And the living creatures here celebrate God's absolute holiness and his infinite holiness. Holiness at root carries the idea of separation or, or being set apart. And often in scripture, the idea of holiness means being set apart from and separate from all that is unclean or sinful, or wicked, or accursed. And God is altogether set apart from sin. In Him is light, and there is no darkness at all. No darkness. He is perfect in purity. And this is why Isaiah responded like he did when he saw his vision of the Lord's throne and heard the angels praise Him as holy, holy, holy. Immediately he was undone by a sense of his own sin he exclaimed woe is me i am unclean and i have seen the lord god's infinite spotless holiness rightly terrifies sinners and god is also holy or set apart in the sense that he is set above or exalted high above all else that is he is distinguished above everything in creation. There is none like him. He is utterly unique. He is exceptional to an infinite degree in every way. He is altogether transcendent and incomparable in all of his perfections. And this is why even unfallen angels who have no sin could feel the need to cover their faces and even their feet in the presence of his holiness. Do you know God who is holy, holy, holy? 
There is no other God. The living creatures worship this holy Lord also by proclaiming him to be the almighty. And that Greek word translated almighty is a compound joining the word meaning everything and the word meaning power or might. He has every power. He has all might, hence almighty. We mean the same when we say God is omnipotent, omnipotent. He possesses all potency. Nothing is impossible for him. And, and as the one with all might, the Lord accomplishes all his holy will. There is zero chance that his will will not be accomplished because he is the Lord God, the Almighty. And there is good reason, after all, isn't, isn't there, that when the Lord manifests himself to men, he appears as one seated on a throne. His sovereignty is fixed and absolute and completely unthreatened, even now. Now, up to this point in verse 8, the living beings of John's vision are following the worship script from Isaiah 6 perfectly. But now they depart from it, and instead of adding, the whole earth is full of his glory, they proclaim that the holy almighty Lord is him who was and is and is to come. What does it mean to worship a God who was and is and is to come? Well, certainly it means more than simply God has a past, present, and future existence. Right, that could be said about Rodney here. This is a threefold explication of the divine name that God revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. Do you remember that? Just before he saved his people out of Egypt, God explained to Moses that, that he should tell the people that their God, who was about to rescue them, was named I Am. And he explained this name as, I am who I am. Or the phrase could possibly be translated, I will be who I will be. Now in most English Bibles, this divine name, I am, and it's actually all over your Bible, uh, but, you, but you may not know that because it's often translated into English as just Lord often using all capital letters, Lord, in your Bible. The Hebrew word behind that is, is Yahweh, and that's derived from just the very common Hebrew verb, Hayah, which means to be. God is. That is his name. God simply is. Now, past theologians have said, therefore, that God is not just a being, he is being. And his existence, his being is of himself. This is God's aseity. He is from himself. His life is of himself. He gives life to all who lives, but he has life in himself. John 5. Everything else that exists, exists only because he wills it to be and causes it to be. He is the initial and ongoing cause of everything else that exists. What is the initial or ongoing cause of his existence? There isn't one. Nothing and no one causes 
him to be in any sense. He just is. I am who I am. He exists and lives with reference to himself. No one acts upon him. No one determines or even influences any aspect of his being. All created things are from him and through him and to him, but he is from none and through none and for none outside of himself. He simply is who he is. There is no reality more fundamental than him, more foundational to him. There is no reality behind him or beneath him or before him or beside him. And the heavenly worshipers of Revelation 4 praise God using an expanded version of this revealed covenant name and, and the reality it signifies. If God is who he is, and that always has been, and it always will be, are you following me? It means he was who he was, and he will be who he will be, and who he was and will be is simply who he is. So he is, as we hear heaven sing, the one who was and is and is to come. This worshipful explication of the divine name celebrates that the self-existing one is the ever-living one. And it must be so. As we hear in the heavenly chorus, as, as their praise instructs us, this fundamental reality about God underscores his holiness. Of course, one who is eternally and unchangingly self-existing would be utterly unique and infinitely exalted. If his name is I am who I am and the name fits, then he must be entirely set apart from all else that is and distinct. And furthermore, this fundamental reality about God being taught again by heaven's praise, underscores his identity as the Almighty. If God has life in himself and everything else lives and moves and finds their being in him, then how can God's will be opposed, ultimately? If he alone is the self-existing one, how could any lay a hand on him to oppose his will? So with respect to his being... God names himself, I am who I am. And with respect to his actions, God says things like, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. I am who I am, will do what he will do. Whatever the Lord pleases in heaven and on earth, he does. Now, you may sign off on all of that being true. I hope you do. But you should examine yourself. How much does this truth about God's holiness and sovereignty actually affect the way that you process the world around you and respond to it? If we were able to peer inside you and see your thoughts, like God does, by the way, the last few days, weeks, months, would we see that your belief in a sovereign God actively governs the way you think and live? 
in our passage, the celebration of God as the self-existing, ever-living Lord continues in verses 9 and 10. Twice in these verses, once in 9, once in 10, God is called the one seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. Uh, Look at those verses now. See it for yourself. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. Now this phrase, that God is one who lives forever and ever, is repeated, so we'll be sure not to miss it. And this phrase that's repeated is repeating the idea we've been discussing from verse 8, isn't it? This, this beats the same theological drum we heard in the praise of the living creatures. That God was, is, is to come. He lives forever and ever. Now this phrase, and this is exciting to notice. I hope you also think. This phrase, him who lives forever and ever, is taken directly from the book of Daniel. When you look at how this idea is developed in the book of Daniel, you see clearly that Revelation 4 is celebrating God as ever-living, not merely for the sake of some abstract consideration of his nature, but also in anticipation and certain hope of his coming kingdom. There is a throne that he will establish that will not pass away. The ever-living God will set up an everlasting kingdom. His life is forever and ever. And so the throne of his kingdom on earth, fittingly, will be forever and ever. Daniel 4, 34 is one place in Daniel. This phrase is found. Nebuchadnezzar has been humbled by the Lord. And says, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's kingdom will come and destroy and replace all previous kingdoms of men. That's the main point of the book of Daniel. Earthly kingdoms rise, earthly kingdoms fall. Every superpower the world has ever seen or will see, they're all temporary. Kings and kingdoms will all pass away. But God's kingdom, like God's life, is forever. Daniel 2:44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Now Daniel in his own lifetime sees the kingdom of Judah fall to Babylon. He sees the kingdom of Babylon fall to the Medes and Persians. He sees the kingdom of the Persians take ascendancy over the Medes. So Daniel personally saw a lot of non-enduring dominions, non-everlasting kingdoms, and non-ever-living kings. And prophetically, he saw all of them pass away. If you are deeply anxious 
about a potential decline of America or potential rise of China or anything like this, you should spend some time listening to Daniel. Ironically, these earthly kings in Daniel are customarily greeted like this. O king, live forever. And then they don't. And their kingdom comes to an end. And a couple of these pagan kings are are brought to a place where they confess that the God of Daniel does, by contrast, actually live forever. And so his kingdom will endure to the end. The God who lives forever and ever will establish a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Now, this is not only a major theme of Daniel. Of course, it's a driving concern of Revelation as well. In Revelation 11, 15, we hear a seventh angel blow his trumpet. And loud voices in heaven say that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. God has always been king. God is now king. But we do not yet see his kingdom fully acknowledged and expressed on earth. But he is going to come and do something about that. And that's part of the significance of the living creature's triple expansion of the divine name. He is worshipped not merely as the one who was and is and will be, He's worshipped as the one who was and is and is to come. And that is purposeful. And you were supposed to read that and think, God is the coming one? Yes, the Lord says many times in Revelation, the Lord Jesus, I am coming soon. The ever-living, holy Lord Almighty is coming The Old Testament prophets looked forward to the great end times coming of God to judge and save. One commentator writes, in Revelation chapter 4, God's sovereignty is seen as it already is fully acknowledged in heaven. And this establishes it as true reality, which must, in the end, also prevail on earth. On earth, the powers of evil evil challenge God's role and even masquerade as the ultimate power over all things, claiming divinity. But heaven is the sphere of ultimate reality. What is true in heaven must become true on earth. And thus John is taken up into heaven to see that God's throne is the ultimate reality behind all earthly appearances. Having seen God's sovereignty in heaven, he can then see how it must come to be acknowledged on earth. And it will be. Look, he comes with clouds descending, once for favored sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. Yea, amen, let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly, oh, come quickly, everlasting God, come down. 
you have to live knowing that things will end this way. And we know things will end this way in part because of how all things began. We know he will come and rule forever as sovereign in the end because he showed himself to be sovereign in the beginning as creator. The sermons Jason has been preaching from Genesis 1 and 2, so important. And this is the theme of the second great movement of praise in Revelation chapter 4. We've heard heaven worship the Holy Lord and now hear heaven worship the worthy creator. Look again back up at verse 9 and let's take notice of the other worshipers around the throne. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. You'll recall these elders from the first half of chapter 4, which I read earlier and we discussed in the last sermon in Revelation. They're seated on thrones around the great throne, robed in white, crowns of gold, but they don't keep their seats for long, do they? Nor their crowns. Whenever they hear the living creatures give glory, they fall down before the one on the throne who lives forever. And throughout the book of Revelation, these guys keep doing this six different times. They cannot stay off of their faces. And they're not just clumsy. They are overcome by the weight of God's majesty and magnificence. They have an overwhelming sense of their profound unworthiness to be in the presence of such a great God and King. And they feel undone by how glorious he is. And who can blame them? The prophet Ezekiel did the same. The apostle John did the same. Peter, James, and John did the same. Abraham did the same. Joshua did the same. Have you ever understood who God is clearly enough that you desire to be in his presence and fall on your face? You should pray that God would make it so and work hard studying prayerfully to grow in the knowledge of God until you do. Now over and over again in this book, the elders fall down, which makes one wonder, well, how often exactly are they doing this? We read in verse 9 of our passage that they do it whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks. Well, how often did the living creatures do that? On the hour, every hour? No. Verse 8 said, night and day, they never cease. Literally, they never take rest from it, which means in John's vision, night and day, the elders never cease this falling down. They never get over how great God is. Do you, do you see this picture in your mind? Living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy Lord. And the elders respond, Worthy are you, Lord. And the creatures again, Worthy. And the elders again, 
holy. And on and on it goes. And the picture we're supposed to get is, is this thundering roar of unending worship reverberating through the heavens. The ever-living God receives never-ending worship. I remember being a kid in either middle school or high school and thinking about worshiping God in heaven forever. And as someone who was not born again at that time, I distinctly remember thinking, that doesn't really sound all that enjoyable. Forever? All we'll do is just sing songs to God all, all the time? Now, I admit, uh, I'm ashamed to admit it now, but, but really, that was something of a disappointment to me because there were lots of other things I loved more than God. Now, I honestly think part of what prompted these thoughts in me uh, was a song we used to sing in the 90s called I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. And we would repeat that sign, uh, that line a lot, I could sing of your love forever, I could sing of your love forever, I could sing of your love forever. And the song was testing you to see if you really meant it and now I've, I've learned a little more about the Bible since then. And I do realize, though, now in heaven uh, and life on the new earth for eternity after that will include more than just singing the same songs, much less the same line over and over again. But that is rather beside the point, isn't it? The point is that I didn't much look forward to an eternity of worshiping God. Now, I remember reasoning that this was still a better outcome than hell. And so it was the best option I had available to me, but it was not something that thrilled my soul. And the real problem was not the highly repetitive nature of that song. The problem was me. My mind was darkened. My eyes were blinded from truly seeing and savoring the beauty and perfections of God. I had no taste for heaven's joys. My soul was warped. My heart was inclined away from delighting in God and so twisted that I treasured my sin and myself more than God. The eyes of my heart were not awakened to behold the glory of who God is, his infinite worthiness. I couldn't see how all-satisfying and eternally satisfying his glory was. All of us are born with a sin nature just like that in Adam. Do you remember being in that place? Are you still in that place? Or has God spoken light into your dark heart and caused you to be born again and caused you to see the glory of God shining in the face of Christ so that you've repented and received the Lord not only as your Savior, but as your supreme treasure. Now, someone who truly knows God cannot be anything but overjoyed by the thought of worshiping Him forever. One of the effects of the new birth from God are true affections from God, for God, and it comes from a true knowledge of God that sees him as the perfection of holy beauty. And the Lord has graciously made me new in Christ, so I am no longer disappointed in the slightest. 
by the thought of worshiping God forever. I love the thought. Do you? When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see, t'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. When we see these 24 elders fall down before the Lord in ceaseless worship, Christians long to join them. Christians long to join heaven's never-ending worship of the ever-living God. Now, some of you might be thinking very soberly, and maybe you're thinking, if I'm honest, that's not me. I do not long to fall on my face before him and worship. Let me ask you, what other things What other things have captured your heart and your soul? And you need to know that those other things are, in fact, lesser things. And it is idolatry, and you need to repent. But here's how that will work. If you repent and turn to the Lord while he may be found, he will have compassion on you, and he will pardon you because of what he sent his son to do for sinners. And if you turn and you are pardoned by the Lord, you will love him for that. You will find yourself wanting to worship him for endless ages. If you you embrace with your heart the basic truths of the gospel, that is sufficient fuel for the worship of God through endless ages. This scene in Revelation 4 is one of the most stirring acts in all of scripture. The elders not only fall down out of their thrones, they also remove the crowns of gold off their heads and they throw them at the feet of him who sits on the throne. Notice they don't try and take off their crown and place it instead on the head of the one who sits on the throne. No, they see him as infinitely more worthy than that. They just throw them before his feet. They want to take every blessing and honor and even reward that they have from God and turn it into a sacrifice of praise. They recognize all of the blessings and rewards they have are gifts of his grace. And they recognize the infinite worthiness of this Holy One. So they cast their crowns upon the glassy sea and cry out, worthy, worthy. Let's listen to them worship. Look at verse 11 in your Bible. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. They worship God as the worthy creator. You, our Lord and God, created all things. And through your will, through your will, All things existed and were creating, created. There is one and only one ultimate reason that everything around you exists right now. It is the will of God for it to be so. It's what God wants. It's what pleases him right now. And that is true of all things, all the time, only by his will they exist. If ever God would stop willing that all created things existed for even a moment, all things would cease to be utterly. 
apart from God's ongoing will that everything he made continues, all of creation would evaporate into total non-existence. There is nothing in the universe that has even a smidgen of independent existence apart from God's world-creating will. So if you understand this significance of God creating all things, then you see it's rather ludicrous to suggest that God is not now completely sovereign over all things. He's exhaustively sovereign and meticulously sovereign. Does this mean that every single thing that God wants to come to pass actually comes to pass? Uh, To ask it another way, does this mean everything God wills actually comes to pass? How could it be otherwise? God's will creates and sustains all of reality. So of course what he wills comes to pass. And because God's will creates and sustains all reality, it is only whatever he wills that comes to pass. God says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. There is not a will beside his to compete with his as the ground of ultimate reality. The only reason everything exists and continues to exist is simply because God wills that it be so. And so all of history in all the universe is simply the unfolding of his holy will, age after age after age unto endless ages. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the plans of his heart to all generations. Did you hear in heaven's song of praise to the creator that God was worthy of all worship because he was the creator of all? Look again at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Why is he worthy of all of this? For, because you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. So from him and through him and to him are all things. Therefore, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Because God is the creator, he is worthy to receive glory, praise from the heart that results from the perception of his power and goodness and wisdom that's on display in all that he's made and on display in the unfolding of his will. And because God is the creator, he is worthy to receive honor, recognition of his authority, and his claim on us, leading us to submit to his revealed will, and winning our trust because we see we can be confident of his goodness, and that we should tremble before his justice. And because God is creator, he's worthy to receive power, the text says, 
Now, that doesn't mean we could make him more powerful in any way. He is already the almighty one, but he receives power in the sense that his sovereignty is worthy to be acknowledged and expressed even on earth as it is in heaven. Because God is the creator, he's also worthy to receive thanks. We saw in verse 9, because he created in all things, and all things that come to pass are as he wills, we owe him thanks to the utmost for everything, everything, everything. If you can confess and actually mean it, not just pair it to words, but if you can confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that should have a tremendous gravitational pull on your heart toward worshiping him. God is the worthy creator, and he is worthy because he is the creator. So in troubled times, we need to remember this foundation stone truth of Christianity. And we need to offer him glory and honor for this. When we worship God as the creator, we are compelled to trust in him because that truth of God's creative power reorients us to the reality that he is also sovereign over all things he has made now. And so we can sing, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And when we worship God for his sovereign work in the beginning, we are led to trust him in troubled times as we wait for his coming in the end, worshiping the God who acted sovereignly in his work of creation reorients us toward the truth that he will act sovereignly in his work of new creation, the establishment of his eternal kingdom. So we can also sing, this is my father's world. The battle is not done, but Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. God's word encourages us to look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are eternal. And we have seen three eternal realities in our text today. God's being, God's kingdom, God's worship. Each one, the book of Revelation says, will be forever and ever. God is and lives forever and ever. Christ will reign in God's kingdom forever and ever. The worship of God and of the Lamb will sound forever and ever. There are two other realities, and only two, that the book of Revelation says will be forever and ever. And they are the eternal destinies of men. Revelation says God's judgment upon the ungodly will endure forever and ever. And the torment of sinners who are not in Christ will be forever and ever. For those who were found trusting in Christ for salvation, Revelation says they will reign. As in rule with Christ forever and ever. 
that's, that's a big gap. How can one cross from one eternal destiny to the other? That's a long way to travel, isn't it? What makes up all of that space in between is simply the perfect life of Jesus, the death on a cross of Jesus, and the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. So that if anyone puts their faith in Jesus, they should expect not torment forever and ever, but to reign with him forever and ever. Jesus took an eternity worth of God's judgment on the cross for his people. And as Spurgeon says, he drank damnation dry. And we look forward to being seated beside him whose kingdom will never end. Do you understand why I said earlier that the gospel is sufficient fuel for an eternity of praise? Salvation is a free gift, and it's God's gift to you if you are repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus. So let's be people whose lives are driven by what will last. God's life, God's kingdom, God's worship, God's judgment, and God's gracious salvation are forever and ever. The COVID-19 pandemic will not be forever. The social and political unrest in our kingdom won't be forever. Our country won't be forever. God's kingdom will be. Our time at Calvary Bible Church will not be forever but our time together worshiping around God's throne will be. Let's pray. God, we agree with heaven that you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power and thanks and blessing and tribute and might and worship forever and ever and we thank you for this because we know that you have caused us to see this it's not that we were wise or holy enough to figure it out for ourselves you were just gracious to us thank you for the privilege of being able to join heaven in never-ending worship as you deserve and to our great joy we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.